Hi, I'm Kay Crudson, and you're listening to Cradle, the podcast. In this podcast, we'll be hearing some incredibly brave stories as we explore different issues and topics surrounding baby loss. We'll hear from some healthcare professionals just what's being done to best support those that need it. From family and friends, how are they affected? And we'll hear from you, your story. Because together, you're not alone. We're probably going to cry, but I do hope there's going to be laughter. And more importantly, there will be support. This is Cradle the Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Cradle the Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be with me. I do hope, wherever you are, that you're okay right now. And I am delighted to introduce you to a chap that I've wanted to speak to for some time, Martin Abrams. He is the Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy Lead at Southport and Ormskirk Hospital Trust. And he's also an incredible trustee of Cradle. And he joins us now. Good evening, Martin. Hello, Kay. Lovely to be chatting with you. You too. Thank you so much. I've wanted to talk to you for some time, um, mainly because I've, I have listened to quite a few things that you've been on, and your voice, to me, is a very calming voice, and one that I definitely need in my life a little bit more, Martin. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> but, kind, kind, of you to say. kind of you to say. Well, I, I don't know whether that's true, but as a, as a chaplain, voice is key. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're not the first person to say that, that sometimes I just listen to my voice and say it's very calming, very soothing. And sometimes in a crisis situation, just the voice itself can bring a little bit of calm and a little bit of uh, trigger that, OK, it's rubbish, but it might be OK. And that, that, I mean, you literally hit the nail on the head there, but we'll go in depth into your role. But and, I, and I'll be honest, I only know um, of a chaplain in uh, what is in my head. I've never actually spent any time with a with a hospital chaplain. But I know that that means that that person is calm, is in control and is soothing because you need to be. <laughs> well, I hope that's how it is. Um, sometimes it might be the duck effect that the calming soothing presence uh, is hiding the fact the feet under the water are going a million to the dozen um we might come across as calm but like everybody else we still struggle with situations and struggle with the big questions of life but the calming presence um is very much what we hope we achieve through spiritual care through chaplaincy so t- talk to me then about um spiritual care and chaplaincy within the realm of a hospital what does that role what does that role mean to you wow in a sense it means everything to me um i've been involved full-time now within the trust i work for for just over 10 years and before that i was working part-time as a on-call chaplain and for me it's just about people um people think because you're a chaplain, you're super religious and you'll come in perhaps with a prescription of maybe a couple of Bible readings or a prayer a day. And it's nothing like that. Chaplaincy is about caring for the whole person, the spiritual side of the person, the angry, the 
difficult parts of life and simply going in there with the open questions and going in there, um, as somebody once famously said, as one beggar showing another one how to find bread. So not going in with all the answers, but going in perhaps with a breadth and a depth of experience of life and care and simply being somebody who journeys with somebody else through sometimes the most difficult day and time of their life. The exciting thing about being a chaplain, of course, is that no two days are ever the same. You go into work whatever time you go in. Um, you know, sometimes that's traditional, fairly traditional office hours, or sometimes you may get a phone call from a ward or somebody at stupid o'clock and saying, we've got a family here who needs support. Can you come? And of course, the answer is always, yes, I can, uh, because that's what we do. Uh, sometimes you go in and your day goes according to plan, but actually that's very rare. Most days don't go according to plan because that's what it's about. That's what life uh, is about. Some people sort of think, you know, that perhaps we're um, religious, which we are. We come from a religious background, but it doesn't define what we do in terms of spiritual care and in terms of chaplaincy. We start with a person. We're person-centred. We offer all sorts of different support. Some might call it pastoral support. Some might call it spiritual support. Some might call it psychological support. And Sometimes that will lead to religious support, but it doesn't have to. That's not a, a prerequisite of, of what we do. And so the role of chaplaincy, well, it'll take me to the bedsides of, of many, many different people, uh, many different stages uh, of life. Um, you know, sometimes it, it's, you know, to share the joys of life. But sadly, in chaplaincy and spiritual care, people don't tend to want to see you when life's going well. They only want to see somebody like myself when things are, are going badly. And we're there within the hospital to support staff, to support patients, to support those uh, important to them. And we're simply there to help, encourage and befriend in any way we can. It must be one of the hardest jobs. Uh, I think your analogy of a duck swimming and flapping underneath. <laughs> um, you know, I've I've been in times where I've wanted to talk to someone and I didn't have that opportunity at the time, but I know plenty of people who have turned to the chaplain to have that conversation. And I guess, who looks after Martin? Oh, wow. That, that That's probably one of the hardest questions in the world. There's a balance within life. But of course, around that, there's a very, very strong network. I'm very fortunate to uh, live, you know, so have a very stable family. I've got grown-up children, but they're always there. They're incredibly supportive. Um, uh, married, um, you know, my wife is incredibly, I think tolerant is probably the word, and also supportive <laughs> as well. And within the hospital um, and within spiritual care and chaplaincy network, there's a really good sense of support and encouragement and being there for each other. And I often say that within um, families or people or mums or mums and the partners, mums and dads or whoever, whatever the context, there's a, a common empathy um, following a, a, a pregnancy loss, a child loss, uh, a baby loss. And I think within those who care as well, there's that common empathy. Sometimes you just know on the look of a face of a colleague, oh, my goodness, that was rubbish, wasn't it? And you don't have to go into great depths of conversation. You just know that you're held and that you're supported. 
And of course, coming from a faith background, um, you, you know, within faith communities, you're often thought of um, and you're cared for within that context as well. So there is a lot of care and a lot of support. But for me, it's about getting the balance of life as well. Um, over the years, I've played a lot of sport and um, possibly been on some occasions a little bit too competitive and aggressive about <laughs> that's the, the release and the, and the letting go. Um, you know, sort of used to watch football quite a lot as well and sometimes come home far too hoarse and decided um, <laughs> I had to make the professional vow not to shout too loud because it wasn't my soothing voice would suffer um, on a Sunday and a Monday if I'd shouted too much on, on the Saturday. <laughs> We all have our release mechanisms. We all have our release places, our release valves. And, and and Martin does that. You'll find me gardening a lot. You'll find me tinkering with old cars a lot. You'll find me in the garage chopping wood and just doing those things that, in a sense, define me as well as what I do professionally. Good. I'm pleased. I'm pleased that Martin looks after himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you talked a lot there about spiritual care but also about faith and religion and that the, the, it's not it isn't about religion it's first and foremost about the person mm. for those people that are in the hospital and they're not religious do you have, is there any kind of i want to talk to someone i can't talk to you i don't have that i don't believe why why is this happening if this was happening then what what, what am i believing in i just imagine in those dark moments where people are, are angry at what's happening do you ever get the brunt of that? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Um, I've got to be honest, people are generally very gracious with me. They don't sort of shout at me as if I'm responsible for it, though um, I vividly remember a colleague years and years and years ago when I was a university chaplain um, and he was walking down Rodney Street in Liverpool and out of the blue, somebody who he didn't think he'd ever met before came up and suddenly started shouting and giving a load of grief to him about all sorts of things. And we never found out who he was, clearly an angry person um, with a lot to get off the chest. And OK, if I'm the sponge that needs to absorb people's anger, um, then, yeah, I'll, I'll take that on the chin as part of the role. But generally, people <laughs> don't do that. They, they will express their anger, their sadness, their pain, their frustration, their questions, their wonder um of why this has happened and the why me and and, and all those things but it it's not directed at me it's directed at life and it's directed in gosh you know life uh can be joyful and amazing and wonderful and it can be the complete opposite at times uh and the highs and the lows the, the summers and the winters of, of life are what it is and I think sometimes people um, of faith will assume people of no faith will struggle more and people of no faith think people with faith will struggle less. Well, I've got to say neither of those statements are true. Um, you know, sometimes people of faith struggle more than people of no faith are less accepting of things. And and I suppose if you've had a faith that makes you think you're protected from such things and you suddenly find you're not, not only is your life shaken by what's happened and your tragedy and your bereavement and your loss, actually your faith's shaken too and perhaps an identity you've had because you've grown up with it and carried on it, that's been shaken as well. So sometimes people of faith can suffer even more. 
And how do you support all those people? I mean, you, you said the, the key question, which rises up so much in the baby loss world, why me? And how do you answer that question if someone, you know, and I've been there, I've asked that question. Of course you have, yeah. And, and it's the eternal question, you know, what, why in a world that's meant to be good and pleasant and great is there suffering? And, and I have to be honest, Kay, and say that anybody who thinks they've got the answer to that, I think I want to be aware of because I don't think anybody you know, can answer that. Anything that you've got to say can sound, especially in the midst of a pain and a sadness, can sound so much like cliche. It can sound uncaring. It can sound dismissive. So, you know, it's surprising actually in the heart of those situations, at the heart of it, I, I, I don't often get asked why. Um Maybe people don't want to ask, or maybe the preoccupation of the moment is just the sadness and and the overwhelming grief. I've never really, I've not got the satisfactory answer to the why, because I don't think anybody has. I just think, you know, life can be spontaneous and life can be great and life can be tragic and life can be sad. And that's the tapestry, that's the jigsaw, and that's how it is. Why good? Why bad things happen to good people? I, I don't know, and that's the struggle that humanity's had since the beginning. So, uh, whether we're anywhere near the answer to that, I don't know. So, I don't particularly see my role in answering questions. I see my role as supporting people who are asking those questions, and I'll listen to those questions. I'll empathise with those questions. If it's a philosophical moment, you know, a, a little bit away from the tragedy, happily bat ideas around as to why it might be, but I ain't got the answer. So if you wanted an answer from me tonight, Kay, sorry, you're disappointed. <laughs> it is the one question that everyone wants answering and, the, and there is no, I mean, there's literally no answer to it. It's, but it's it's really interesting because um, we've done a lot within Cradle and I've done a lot personally around language yeah. Um, used specifically with baby loss and less the answering of the question, more not what to say. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. I guess you come across that a lot and, and, and you need to know what to say and what not to say. I think it's more important to know what not to say than what to say. And uh, one of my observations, uh, and I think it, whether it's a, a European thing or a British thing, I don't know, but we're, we're terribly scared of silence. Um, uh, and, I, and I am to some degree, but perhaps not as much as others. I think people feel when you're supporting people, you've got to talk and you've got to fill silence with words. And, and I sometimes think it's when you're filling the silence with words that the really rubbish statements that people say, you know, come out. And it, it's so true, you know, baby loss, um, child loss, pregnancy loss changes people. But, but it's not just those who have suffered the loss. It, it changes. It's the ripple in the pond effect as well. And, you know, families that I work with will say, oh, my mum, oh, my dad, oh, my uncle, oh, my gran said this. And I just can't understand why they would say that. And and it potentially changes that relationship for, for a long time, hopefully not forever. But work needs to be done, you know, sort of well beyond that as to why uh, people would say that. And I sometimes say on 
sort of public occasions if I've been asked to take services or funerals for babies you know I do say a little bit about language about silence and about how I don't believe many people would go out of the way to say something hurtful or cruel or inappropriate but it's the most sensitive time that anybody will go through in their life so the ability to to mishear something and our inability to have the language to say things will mean that we do get it wrong and and we do say wrong things and and you know language is our tool it's how we communicate obviously we do non-verbal communication and lots of other things but fundamentally the words we say are how we communicate and what well, 90% of life it gets us by really well we can you know fall in love by the words we use we can express how we're feeling by the words we use but when it comes to a pregnancy and a, a baby loss nothing's prepared us nothing's given us those tools and those words and perhaps too one of the things we have to recognize is how close we are to generations that treated baby loss so so differently you know to how we treat baby loss you know my, my, my granddad um his mom lost half a family you know sort of of i think it was something like 12 13 children only six or seven survived to adulthood which oh my goodness which wasn't an unusual story back in victorian yeah. times you know and so my gran and handed down to you know my dad would speak in very different language because their experience was it, it was common it was part of life and i think that bred a dismissiveness about it that today is just totally unacceptable and just not part of you know how we would support people and how we would respond but i guess we have to remember the generation above and the generation above who are, who are still around and have had that mother's knee language of that fed to them well well that when it comes to such they've never thought about it in the life again and then when it comes to such an encounter you know their granddaughter or their daughter whoever suffers a baby loss where do they go back they go back to mother's knee uh, and mother was probably quite hard about it because of the context in which she lived and she's not going out of her way to say something that would upset anybody of course she's not but she's using the tools that she's been given so we have to be so so careful uh, in the language that we use you know i know lots of examples of how it's been used inappropriately and the sayings that really you know are awful oh don't worry you've got other children well what does that matter <laughs> at that moment what does that matter yeah of course and, and they're lovely and i love them but i want to this one you know what an awful thing to say but it's said genuinely and I've met mums perhaps some past generations who have been doing a little bit of support with people who had baby loss in the 60s and 70s who've been looking for baby graves and you know some of the things that they tell me that they were told by clinicians and nurses that you know we would count them as cruel um it's important we don't take our standards to judge another generation they, they may have been cruel they may not have been but when you were simply told to oh go away you young you fit go and have more children it was probably meant in a very positive well-meaning way i don't think it was often heard that way and our generation i'm sorry i'm 
I should say, <laughs> past generation. I think we're a different generation. I've been around <laughs> too long to include us as our generation. I'll take you in my generation. Oh, bless you. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just simply wouldn't accept things like that. And and the thing about language is if somebody says the wrong thing, it, it lives with you so, so long. Um, if I can be personal just for, you know, a few moments, um, yeah, I'm very lucky. I've got two adult children who live independently and very supportive. But between the two, we we had an early pregnancy loss, um, and you know, it, somebody said to us at the hospital uh, a phrase that we'll never forget. What are we? 28, 29 years on. Um, there was a, a scan to see, you know, what was going on, and the person doing the scan quite well meaningly said oh everything's okay now her okay was that the womb was clear and that baby was gone that wasn't our okay because we still oh. had the uncertainty you know we hadn't had a definite you know has it yeah hasn't. and that phrase you know nearly 30 years on you know you still think wow it was it wasn't you know it wasn't deliberately said unkindly but it still resonates as sticks with you sticks with you because that's what that's what it does and that's why language is so 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 important and in those moments when you are you are fixating on what that person is saying and they they have all the answers and and you everything is all pinning on what they're gonna say and then when it's not it's not right it's not what you want to hear or the way in which the words that they've used aren't right, then it does just stay with you and it's all you can think about. It is. And we probably put an emotional, you know, sort of attachment onto that in a sense that we almost scapegoat it. Who do you get angry with, you know? So um, we tend to get angry with those who perhaps, you know, do something that in the ordinary run of life we might laugh off. But when we're so angry and so emotive, you know, we sort of throw a reaction uh, onto onto language perhaps more than we might do otherwise. And the thing is, you know, at the time we're engulfed in grief. And um, for me, grief is... I can't just turn that off. And I'm sorry if you think after three months I need to stop talking about it because my grief is no different. I'm just learning to live with it. It's the same. And actually, some days it's much worse and other days it's a bit easier, but it's never going anywhere. And even now at my happiest, it's Mm. still just there in the background. And there's phrases that people might use in response to that. Say, oh, it means you've got good days and bad days. Well, one of the things I learned a long, long time ago is not to use that phrase because actually you might have bad days and better days or okay days and bad days. But early on in grief, there's often no good days. It's just rubbish days and really, really rubbish days. And But that's a phrase that's so easily used because it's part of our language. It's part of our culture. Um, and even that in a phrase, no, there's no good days and bad days for some people. It's just really bad and bad. I think people just want want to be able to to either ignore it because I I, I have and I know plenty of other people who have lost friendships along the way because friends just haven't been able to deal with yeah. my grief. Um, and other people just they want to quickly make it better. 
and and actually it took me a long time to think they've not said what they've said in any kind of malice they've said it because they just want me to feel better yeah but it's had the opposite effect yeah they've said it out of kindness yeah um and sometimes people may never be aware that what they've said has actually been taken in the complete opposite way from what it was meant yeah and i guess the only way in which we can you know change that for next generations is by keep talking about it um yeah yeah Absolutely. And, and, you know, when we talk about um, baby loss in, you know, baby loss awareness week is great about raising its awareness. You know, part of that is raising the awareness of baby loss, the pain of it, um, the commonality of it. But equally, if it can begin to teach a new language of how we respond to it and put different language and concepts and meanings and thoughts out there so that, you know, heaven forbid if somebody goes through their experience their friends have got perhaps a tool of language to fall back on oh i saw something on whatever i saw Kay talking about it on on telly i saw whoever talking about it and what they said was oh i mustn't say I, just something deep 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 down in there that gives the tools to say something appropriate something right to think about what they say rather than just go straight in there to use empathy. How would I feel if that was me, if it was turned around and what would I want to hear? What wouldn't I want to hear? Uh, oh, I heard this phrase that might be helpful and things like that. It's definitely, the, it's almost like a an unwanted education. But if, if that, if pain can be put into purpose and into doing that, yeah. then it's one way to look at it, I guess. Yeah, I'm I so guess. sorry that you, that you, I lost your second baby. Do you and your wife talk about that baby? Now, rarely, because in a sense, you know, life moved on. At the time, we talked about it a lot. Um, and we can only say it because we didn't know if it was a him or a her. And, and it sounds like such an impersonal word, doesn't it? But um, so, yeah, nearer the time, we did talk about it a lot and and... I, I said to my wife today in preparation for this um you know podcast if i talk about our experience are you comfortable with that to which she said yeah i really am because we probably don't talk about it enough now um and the life moving on for us was that we were lucky enough to you know go on and have a um well a rainbow baby um and life moved on uh but it doesn't mean to say you forget you don't forget that experience and we still remember and we still think what if and i know you do a lot um specifically for for those that have experienced baby loss um and child loss at southport and Ormskirk hospital trust i know you do remembrance services don't you but because you've had that experience do you find that your approach to it is different if that makes sense it makes absolute perfect sense um and i think the answer to that is of course it does because life shapes us um i i started um in um pastoral work in devon and then after three years went to cardiff in the late 1980s and in a sense that's when i began the journey of support in pregnancy and and, and baby loss there was the 
a tragedy that in a sense shaped my life there. Uh, one of my very close colleagues um, had what back then would have been called a cot death. They experienced a cot death. Um, oh. So we're talking 1987. Um, and you know, because it was a very close colleague and I was um, in my early, you know, only in my early 20s at the time. It was a, a shocking experience for me um, and family. And sadly then, um, South Wales, along with one, had one of the highest instances of, of cot death in the country. So part of my work was quite regularly to be supporting people who had had a, a cot death. How so, do you do that, Martin? <laughs> I just how do you how do you have I mean you've got ears but I, I just don't know how you do that you, you befriend Strength. you yeah. sit you sit by people you listen you journey with uh, as long or as short as they want uh, in chaplaincy sometimes people only want to see you the ones they want to tell you what they want to tell you they want to say what they want to say um and when I say they never want to see you again, it's not, well, I hope it's not a reflection of what we've done in that encounter and in that <laughs> moment. For some, I think you'll always be associated, you know, with that moment and that pain and and, and that awfulness. And others you journey with for, for years and years and years. Um, you know, the, the date uh, is embossed in, in my mind uh, of that um, child loss. Um, and I think for about 20 years, we... I would send a card on the day. Uh, and after that time, they said, lovely to hear from you. You don't need to send us a card every year now. Um, doesn't mean it wasn't dismissive. It was, a, no, yeah. a, you know, we're, 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 you know, but that's how long that journey was together. Uh, but others are, are much shorter. Uh, but it's about journeying with people, uh, about being a kind friend, occasionally a critical friend, but most of the time just somebody who listens and absorbs and and perhaps helps interpret as well. Um, and and when the time's right, asks the, the the bigger questions like you know I know this is rubbish now. Where do you think you might be in six months, twelve months, five years, or, or whatever? What are the hopes? What are the dreams? What are the ambitions? Where? might we be then and that's not about forgetting it's about <laughs> moving forward so what would you say and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a, a couple of girls i know um spring to mind when when i say this what how do you best support those that can't see a future that haven't you know they've experienced loss and they haven't they haven't had a healthy pregnancy they don't have any children and, and they're they're questioning that are here and now, never mind later down the line. How do you how do you support them? Uh, I've got to be honest, that that must be one of the most difficult experiences for any woman and uh, any partner of that woman. It, it, I just can't imagine how that must feel. Uh, and support in those circumstances must simply be about listening and journeying and crying with and supporting and hoping with and just being with you know the, the bigger questions there are tens of thousands of miles away it's about day to day and I suppose it fundamentally comes back to living you know we often say in grief you begin by living minute to minute 
and perhaps you progress to five minute by five minute, 10 minute by 10 minute and, and so on. And that is just a part of life that perhaps you can only live, to use the cliche, a day at a time, a minute at a time, an hour at a time. Um, and we often find in grief, you know, one of the key questions is what's going to make a difference to you now? What can I do now that will make a difference? And sometimes it's absolutely nothing because it's just such an aching pain that, that will not go away. And I think you were talking earlier about, you know, sometimes friends, well, friendships change and redefine themselves. And as in all grief, and, and that is a living grief, it, it, it's not so much grieving for what you've had, it's grieving for what you don't feel able you can have. And as in all grief, it's about finding those key people who you can trust, who you know you can say anything you want to, and they'll always be there for you, holding your hand, journeying with you, sitting by your side. That's so true, Martin. It is having uh, friendships change. And, you know, I think I was probably quite angry for a while about certain friendships that changed for me, but coming away from it, and I'm talking years down the line, I just think people are there at certain times, aren't they? And 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 then your paths yeah. either stay close or, or paths just extend a bit further out until you're not really on the same road at all anymore. And that's okay because sadly, or I'll say it a different way, thankfully, I've met so many amazing people who get it. Yeah, yeah. And um, any child, pregnancy, baby loss redefines us and anyone who says... I'll get over it, doesn't understand it. You, you learn to live with it, but it redefines you as a person. And some friendships can sustain that and some friendships can be redefined in that. And sadly, you say, right, others can't. But then from that, you meet other companions on the road who perhaps share that common empathy. My partner, Jim, always says everyone is a lesson or a blessing. And I always think, it's actually... <laughs> I'm either learning from you or you are I'm blessed that you're here and and it doesn't matter what you know what tomorrow brings right now is what I need and, and that's fine um yeah tell me a little bit about the uh, about the services that you hold at the trust I know the monthly aren't they yeah we, we, we do different services uh on different occasions um I've actually been involved uh within well, it was Southport originally before it even became one trust and then it joined with Ormskirk later. But since I think about 1999, I've been involved in the monthly early pregnancy loss services, which we call um, our babies. Um, we started off in uh, a churchyard, um, having the service there. Uh, we moved to another and we moved to Southport Crematorium and now to West Lanks Crematorium. And so everybody who experiences um, what is called an early pregnancy loss um, is invited to that service. You know, if parents would feel it important to have a, a service for themselves, they can opt and, and, and do that from whenever. And what we offer there, well, it, it's um, a service that we've put together that has to try and encompass everybody which is 
absolutely impossible. You know, we're dealing with people who come to those services from the super religious to the non-religious and everybody in between uh, from a very early pregnancy. So we put together a service that has a little bit of spiritual content, a little bit of religious content, and a lot of the of the poems and the readings that have come out of the well, the baby loss family, if you like. Um, you know, I, I will always say, you know, we should never be Sybil Faulty. Sorry, I'm old enough to remember Faulty Towers first way round. Yeah. I love hey, don't hey, hey, hey. You know, I but we should never Faulty be the Sybil who says, I know how you feel, because nobody can ever know how anybody else feels. But the poems that have come out of the baby loss family, the baby loss community, um, we can never say this is how you should feel, but when somebody's expressed how they felt, it can help others interpret their own feelings. So we use a lot of those and we talk a little bit about grief. We talk a little bit about language uh, and we do say, you know, a blessing for the babies and that can be taken in a religious way or it can be just about recognising they're held within the human family. You know, even though, you know, it's quite an early pregnancy loss, um, it, it, it a loss is a loss and the grief is a grief. And actually, the number of days, weeks, months don't matter. A loss is a loss. And within the, you know, 15, 20 minutes that we're together, um, we, we, we try and be as supportive as we can. We never know how many people are going to turn up. You know, we've had 20 or 30 people. We've had very occasionally non uh, and everything in between but even when it's been done we still treat it with the same dignity and respect uh, as we would if there'd been hundreds of people there and I think that is spiritual and I think it's human it's about humanity holding one another um, and these uh, and all that potential and all that love and in terms of language I still now wonder whether even the phrase early pregnancy loss is appropriate because you know gener gen today's generation owns their children and their babies so much earlier than past generations you know in, in past generations and i'm not thinking of that many ago you know your ability to know that you were even pregnant you know might not depending on on yourself you know would be six, eight, 10, 12 weeks. Uh, whereas yeah. now, you know, sort of. You can almost find yeah. out within I know. minutes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that's not about what's right and about what's wrong, but what it means now is we put an identity on our pregnancies and on our babies so much earlier. You know, these re reveal parties, which are absolutely fantastic, the access to 3D um, scanning and so on, you know, means that what in the past might have been considered an early pregnancy loss is a significant loss now. And our language oh, and our yeah. society needs to recognise that. But, but that's what we do with, with, with the monthly um, services. Like I said, I've been involved long before I was a hospital chaplain. Actually, I've been involved uh, within Southport since the beginning uh, of them. And we also do other occasions as well uh, for Cradle. Um, we, we do the, the sunflower uh, ceremony, the planting of the sunflowers. And 
I, I love planting stuff it, within grief. I think planting seeds and bulbs and sunflowers. I, I always think it's such a hopeful thing to do because uh, I sometimes see, you know, an ugly seed or an ugly bulb and, you know, think that's, that's, that's grief in a sense. It's ugly. You don't want it. What on earth can come out of that? And you plant it. Uh, and a few weeks or months later, uh, there's something beautiful coming out of that. Um, and I sometimes use that as an analogy of how we perhaps can see grief, you know, that from the rubbish can come something beautiful. Not necessarily this bulb, not necessarily this sunflower, but maybe next year's or, or the years after. And we can plot perhaps how our grief and our journey of grief goes if we do those similar things, um, you know, year after year. We do a wave of light ceremony as well. And of course, um, COVID, you know, has done so much in terms of what we can do gathered and what we can't do gathered. But I, I think going forward, uh, we're learning some very valuable lessons uh, from that, that uh, we always used to focus on the gathered events in the past. And, and if you couldn't come, you know, we'd never say it, but, you know, you'd almost say, oh, dear, sorry, you can't come, you know, end of and never really try to understand why people couldn't come. We just assumed they were busy or upset or whatever, but then did no alternative. So, you know, what we did this year at Southport and Ormskirk is recognised that there's lots of wave of light events and there's lots of big buildings lit up and there's lots of things going on. So, we're still going to record ours and make it an online resource. And, and that's what we did. We recorded a little ceremony. Uh, it's on the hospital YouTube channel. And so it's there for people who couldn't come, didn't want to come, didn't feel able to come. And, and you know, we just hope in that very simple thing we put together, there's almost a, a, an evergreen sort of thing about it that when people feel ready for something like that, they can tune in. And if after two minutes, it's too emotive and too much, they can turn off which of course when you go somewhere you can't do so i think that's one of the lessons of covid we've learned taking forward and since 2014 and um, we've done an annual christmas uh, remembrance service it, it came out of a, a parent bereavement group a focus group that we had um at the hospital um interestingly uh the non-religious parents on the group made it far more religious than i wanted to do it as a <laughs> as a chaplain <laughs> well let, let's have some carols and let's get the salvation army band and because that's nice though <laughs> i do find it difficult because so many of the traditional christmas carols are so emotive in their language about children <laughs> which makes it really hard yeah. to know what you can choose with any sense of integrity and, and careful use of language but the, the feedback we get from that is that for some to do it early in December means they can think about their babies and the children we write the names on the baubles they put it on the Christmas tree at the hospital or wherever we're having the service they can take one home put it on their Christmas tree we do other things to remember and one of the early bits of feedback we got from somebody was of course we don't forget them over Christmas but by having a specific time early on to remember uh, and this family had other children it gives us the strength to do Christmas for them you know and it sort of gets yeah. off to that yeah. right it's start incredible. and you know so for the last so, so till 2019 we were doing that in the baby garden at Ormskirk um, and then of course 2020 comes along Covid comes along we can't meet we can't gather so we, we did it online for a couple of years uh, and then last year um, 
there was such a sort of feeling amongst the group we work with that we really do want to get together. Um, so actually, we only did it online a year. And we did it. Um, we couldn't invite people to the hospital because effectively the hospital was still closed to visitors. So um, Bearsky yeah. Crematorium very kindly said we could use their premises. Um, and it was the most awful of nights. It was blowing a gale. It was chucking it down in rain. We thought we might have to cancel it, but the logistics of that were just going to be too difficult. I was sort of thinking no one's going to come. <laughs> we had over 100 people there and, uh, you know, it was just oh. so moving and special and, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just physically want to be with people. Yeah. And and as I was saying earlier and say time and time again, I think to be in a community of people who've had a similar experience, you know you don't have to say anything. You're just with people who get it. Yeah. And that feels so much safer than so many other things that, that you do. And especially around Christmas when the emphasis is so much on children, you know, sort of to be in that safer space where people who were there, some would have children with them, some would have other children at home, some would have none. And it's just a safer space and you just feel that common empathy. Uh, there was one year and a couple really bravely came just weeks after, um, you know, their own child loss. I was, you know, to see them, I was just staggered that they felt able to come. And they were befriended by a mom who got a baby with her. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is ticking, ticking all the wrong, all the boxes of insensitivity in a sense, yeah. you know, we should be guarding against this, you know. And yet they found it so comforting because here was a picture of where they might be in a year, two years, five years or whatever. And I just, you know, I didn't have any involvement other than standing there and watching that and thinking, wow, that was powerful. That was amazing. The strength that they got from, from, from another person's journey. Yeah. Helping absolutely. them get through. The, yeah. The fact that you, the list of the, of the things that you offer and that you, you provide, I, I know there'll be people listening who you have, inadvertently helped massively um and so many people within cradle were incredibly lucky to have you you've been actually with cradle from the very beginning it seems that you've been with everyone from the very beginning but <laughs> from before cradle really was cradle you've been there <laughs> well yeah yeah i think cradle is an amazing thing uh you know the the way it's supporting and working alongside the NHS, you know, it is just absolutely amazing and, and opening up care um, probably earlier on in pregnancy loss than, than perhaps other wonderful charities do. Well, we're very fortunate to have you. And honoured to have, have had this time with you. Very calm. I feel like you need to now record like a bedtime podcast of just calming, peaceful words, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> That would do so well uh, for you. We've not even uh, touched upon the fact that you've been on Songs of Praise. <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean, you didn't know this, but Martin's actually very famous within, uh, certainly in the Northwest. So you were spent some time with Alec Jones. Um, you've done various podcasts. I know you've written lots of different articles, but the key really, having spent this time with you, to you is you're an incredible listener. And see, the silences doesn't don't matter, do they? Uh, absolutely right. Um, yeah, uh, there's a, a Greek philosopher, so well, two and a half thousand years ago, uh, 
a paraclete, I think he was called, uh, who said, we've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Very true. Very wise. Lots of other people have claimed that quote, but it goes back a lot further than most people claim. And if we're not doing twice as much listening than we are speaking, then are we a true friend and are we a true carer? Perfect way to end this podcast, Martin. Thank you so much. It's been an, a joy to spend this time with you. I'm so grateful that you give up so much of your time, that you are who you are, that you are with us in the cradle journey as well. And I know so many people will agree with me when I say thank you. Like It really means a lot to so many people. I never had the chance to speak to a hospital chaplain, and, and that isn't on any bad part to them. It, mm. I just didn't. But I know if I'd had the chance to spend time with you, it would have helped. And I feel like you've helped me, even though it's years down the line. So thank you. Well, the door never closes, and it's been... I always feel what I do is a privilege. I always feel very humble um in the things i'm able to do and it is a privilege and it's been a privilege to chat with you tonight so thank you thank you martin thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of cradle the podcast if you do get a second if you could rate and review us and share the episode with as many people as you can so that we keep the conversation going you are not alone